Well then, uh, good morning. I, um, I was listening to what Doug had to say earlier, and there's a couple of points of clarification that I think I need to make. And the first is that at Apawa Baptist, the bro code still holds. In other words, we don't acknowledge each other at the urinal. <laughs> Guys, you'd understand that. It's important. And the second is, we're a Christian church, not a Hindu one, so there will be no reincarnation, dogs or otherwise. <laughs> well, last Sunday morning, I got a uh, message image thing from Karen, who was preaching here, which showed her in this very nice sort of maroon outfit. And she said, I'm wearing this outfit Hopefully, which will hopefully distract people from realizing that I'm preaching exactly the same passage as you did the previous week. Did anybody notice? Oh, you did, okay. I, um, it was my fault, by the way. And I texted back, look, I think what you should do is say that you've heard from God and that he was most unhappy with what I had to contribute the previous <laughs> week and it needed a do-over. Gracious lady that she is, Karen wouldn't go along with that. I was, I was disappointed, Karen. That would have got a good laugh, I reckon. Um, this week, when I started thinking about this sermon, I, I, I've got a new toy. It's called ChatGPT. <laughs> Artificial intelligence. And I did. And so I, sa- I said, you know, um, write me a, write me a 2,500-word sermon on... Um, the martyrdom of Stephen. About five seconds later, there it is. I've printed it out, I've got a copy for you, and you can read it over lunchtime. Interesting. If things ever get really tough, you know, it's an option. Anyway. Now nah, it's not, it's rubbish actually, to be quite <laughs> frank. It's really bad. But anyway, you'll see that over your sausage rolls. I feel very secure. Well, today's story is from when the early church was in a real growth phase. The the tension with the temple authorities in Jerusalem was rising, which gave church life, I think, a real edge. There was a cost to being here. And getting into this life of this new spiritual movement, you might get whipped for your trouble, or perhaps shunned by your family. If you weren't that serious about this new faith, you probably wouldn't stick around, because it was becoming increasingly apparent that there was going to be a serious price to pay at some stage for being part of this community. Now, Middle Eastern people in those days, and actually through to the present, are very big on hospitality, and supporting the poor. And so it was a custom in the synagogue that each week they would go around collecting alms for the poor, that sort of donations to help the poor folk on the roll. And that included going door to door to everyone who they knew. So you get quite a bit of stuff doing that. However, I imagine that the widows, and most of these people were widows, who were known to be Jesus' followers, would no longer have been on the synagogue's widow's role. They'd be seen as a bit dodgy. 
widows from the Jewish communities around the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and that's, so, uh, is this thing working? No, it, it does not appear to be. Um, that blue bit on the right there, that's where Jerusalem is, and you had Jewish communities all around Greece and e what was now Egypt and Libya and Syria and all that. Widows from there would return home to Jerusalem so they could die there. And there's some Jews were visiting Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast, which had just been a, a little while before, and they got caught up with this new movement, and they were probably, some of them, widows as well. Now, these were Hellenist Jewish people from the Greek world. So, they worshipped God, but they were a little bit different because they just, they probably dressed differently, their accent would be different, and they, you know, think about people from Southland. You know, all that R-rolling business. And, and, and the Scottish plaid stuff. They would speak with an accent. They probably didn't speak Aramaic, which was the common language of Judea. And what's more, the locals didn't really know them. They're new to town. In Christchurch speak, their grandparents weren't born in Christchurch. And so the scene is well set for this clash of subcultures. And we have it here too. I have talked to some Māori people who have come here, visited us, and they've not really felt that comfortable amongst us. I know a lesbian mum who would love to come here, but is not too sure that we would accept her as she is. Would we? Could she be herself here without feeling like she's got to change somehow to fit in? There were a couple here for a, a few years ago I was here for a while, and I, I got talking to them one day, and I realized as I was talking that, oh, you guys aren't married. And I suggested they might like to keep that fact to themselves for a while. I was concerned that people might give them a hard time. So it's an issue for us too. Now, copying the best of a synagogue, the early church had a widow's role. But the Hellenist believers felt that their widows were getting overlooked. Now, if you think about persecution from the outside, it galvanizes a community, and over time, it really strengthens the church. But internal conflict, well, that splinters us. It's like the effect of a civil war in a country. Uh, Spain took many decades to get over its civil war, which was fought in the 30s. I'm not sure if they entirely have got over it yet. So the apostles, the leaders of this new community, faced this problem, which could really have blown their community to bits. What did they do? Well, they gathered the community together, and they said, hey, why don't you select a group of wise and spiritually mature people to run the widow's role? Now, the interesting thing about the people selected, if you look in the start of Acts chapter 6, is one thing they have in common, is they all have Greek names. So the community handed the problem of administering the widow's role over to the, their bit that was feeling on the outside that had the least cultural capital in that place. The majority gave up their power. And in doing so, the church 
became united again. And I think on that day, they took their first step, their first baby step towards becoming a global universal church. The hinge that started moving that day swung further a little while later when the first Roman believers were baptized by Peter in Acts chapter 10, and then Gentiles accepted by the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. But it was a progressive thing. So Stephen, the star of today's story, started his ministry journey as a food bank administrator. But that is not what we remember this guy for. God had other plans for him. Listen to this. I'm reading from Acts 6, 8 to 15. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of them who belonged to the synagogue of the free men, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia stood up and argued with Stephen, perhaps including the Apostle Paul, who was from Tarsus in Asia. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. And they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him in front of the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never stopped saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then Stephen was called on to answer these charges by the high priest, the big shirang, the guy with the funny hat and the coloured gown. The man. Big moment. And as a wise man, and Stephen, we're told, was a wise man, he would have been able to see very soon in his future, at the very least, a flogging, and maybe his death. I would be sweating bullets in that place. Be terrified. And he, again, as a wise man, would have known what was at stake for the Sanhedrin, for the ruling council. Its authority was at stake. Its legitimacy was at stake. In fact, its very survival. Well, despite all of that, he took a deep breath and he just went for it. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Bold. The God of glory appeared to our ancestor Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. It's in modern-day Iraq. Before he lived in Haran, just north of Iraq, and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and go to the land that I will show you. Then he left the country of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. And after his father died, God had him moved from there to this country in which you are now living. He did not give him any of it as a heritage, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though he had no child. Now, I can imagine the Sanhedrin people sitting there thinking, you're supposed to be answering this charge that you're a dodgy so-and-so who says that this Jesus is going to be destroying the temple, and you're what? You think you're giving a religious history lecture? What's that about? 
Anyway, Stephen continued. And God spoke in these terms, that his descendants would be resident aliens in a country belonging to others who would enslave them and maltreat them for 400 years. So if you know your Bible, we're into Egypt now. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And then he gave him the covenant, covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Now the Jews thought of themselves primarily as the heirs of Abraham. So he was this kind of sacred figure and their sense of who they were as a people. But this man, Abraham, he did not receive the land that God promised his descendants. All he really had was God's promise itself. He never saw its fulfillment. He would live out his life as an outsider because he faithfully followed God's call into the unknown. He never knew the nation of Israel, and he never worshipped at the temple. Now we continue. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Now we're into Joseph and his technicolor dream coat, for those who are following this by musical theatre. But God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and enabled him to win favour and to show wisdom when he stood before Pharaoh, that's the Egyptian king, who appointed him rule over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout Egypt and Canaan and great suffering and our ancestors could find no, no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And again, I'm sitting there, the Sanhedrin thinking, what the heck, where is this going? And then Joseph sent and invited his father Jacob and all his relatives to come to him, 75 of them in all. So jo Jacob went down to Egypt. He himself died there, as well as our ancestors. And their bodies were brought back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver. At this stage in the biblical narrative, the promised land, the totality of the promised land was a burial cave in the side of a hill. What would one day be a nation was now a cave. But as the time drew near for fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham, our people in Egypt increased and multiplied until another king who had not known Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt craftily with our race, forced our ancestors to abandon their infants so they would die. At this time, Moses was born Prince of Egypt, and he was beautiful before God. For three months, he was brought up in his father's house, and when he was abandoned, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his rallies, the Israelites. And when he saw one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his kinfolk would understand that God through him was rescuing them. 
but they did not understand. The next day he came to some of them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when he heard this, Moses fled, and he became a resident alien in the land of Midian. There he became the father of two sons. Now when another 40 years had passed, so we get up some big numbers now, we're 80, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of the burning bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And he approached to look, there came the voice of the Lord. And at this stage, I wish I had a voice like Morgan Freeman, but I don't. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses began to tremble, can't blame him. And he did not dare look. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the mistreatment of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. So Moses, who the Jewish leaders studiously followed his law, encountered God in the wilderness, not in the temple, not in the promised land, in the wilderness of Sinai. And because of that meeting, that ground was holy ground. Not just the temple. Moses never stood foot in the temple. So can you worship God anywhere? It was this Moses whom they rejected when they said, Who made you a ruler and a judge? And whom God now sent as both ruler and liberator through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet for you from your own people, as he raised me up. He is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living oracles to give to us. Now our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead they pushed him aside. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, his mate, Make gods for us who will lead the way for us. As for this Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. At the time they made a calf, offered a sacrifice to the idol, and reveled in the works of their hands. But God turned away from them and handed them over to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer to me slain victims and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No. You took along the tent of Moloch, that's a local god, and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, so I will remove you beyond Babylon. You'll be punished. So when you dig into this, and I appreciate this is long, and I feel it more than you do because I'm having to read it, but when you dig into this, the Israelites' heritage is actually pretty spotty. 
they have been attracted to idolatry, to worshipping other gods from virtually the moment they left Egypt for the next 500 odd years. And then Stephen continued. Our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the wilderness as God directed when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern that he'd seen. Our ancestors in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. And it was there until the time of David who found favour with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Hmm. That's a big call. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make everything? God works inside the temple, sure, but outside as well. He is vastly greater than a deity that could be confined to a temple, no matter how grand that temple might be. He is not the tame, tribal God of the Jews in their land. He is the God of all people over the whole earth. And I imagine when they heard this and thought about this, the hairs on the back of the necks of the Sadducees starting to bristle. And then Stephen, after a very long introduction, and you've been very gracious, took his kill shot. You stiff-necked people. Gosh, I've waited to say that to you. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Impure. You are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and his murderers. You are the ones that received the law as a dying by angels, and yet you have not kept it. Boom. Israel's tradition, which they were so inordinately proud of, was actually resisting the work of God. And the execution of Jesus was the ultimate piece of that resistance. Stephen, the wise and spiritually gifted, has been far more in their face than Peter was earlier. He's poked the bear without mercy. He spoke God's truth to power. Consequences be damned. And what happens? They became enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. Try doing that. It's very uncomfortable. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he looks, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Don't think that was probably the most helpful thing to say at this point. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. 
And the witnesses laid their coat at the feet of, feet of a young man named Saul, whom we will hear a lot more about. And while they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, very graciously, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he said this, he died. Wow. Stephen, I think, held up a mirror to the powers that were, and they didn't like the view. So they shot the messenger. It's mangling a couple of metaphors, but you get the idea. And so the first follower of Jesus to be martyred was Stephen. And Phil's going to talk next week about the persecution that that event triggered. You see, I think the religious leaders of Jesus' day had a tame God who was the clubhouse God for them and their people. Worship outside the clubhouse to them was second rate. Didn't really cut the mustard. They loved their tradition. And they imagined that they represented it its very best, Abraham and Moses, rather than its very worst, Saul and the prophets of Baal. They were an insular people, an inward-focused people, a self-absorbed people. I think we can be insular too. I was born in 1966, which is close to the tipping point when the New Zealand church became a, began a rapid decline which is still underway. We are not alone. The whole Western world is on a similar trajectory, just at different points of the curve. Countless books, tapes, CD-ROMs, MP4s, simulcasts, and PowerPoints have been made about this phenomenon and how to respond to it. It's an industry. All around us, the culture and the social world we live in has changed rapidly and shows no sign of slowing down. However, we don't change much. Now, if we time-warped an Opawa Baptist parishioner from 1950 into today's service, so that's 70-odd years ago, would it seem so different to them? Well, there'd be no choir, and they'd be wondering where the choir was, and they'd be bewildered by our music and how we dress. I don't see any gentlemen wearing ties today. That's pretty disgraceful. But these are merely stylistic things. We still teach via a monologue sermon most of the time. We worship through singing and we have communion on the first Sunday of the month, as we always have done. We still have a church eldership board, have the same philosophy of membership and have a Sunday school. Pretty similar, actually, in its bones, but the world out there is vastly different. We are an institution in an age that does not like or trust institutions. It's massively challenging to be a neighbourhood church in New Zealand in 2023. And I think from the outside, for those who might notice us, and that's not everybody, we can look like 
a small self-absorbed religious club with a club God in love with its own way of doing things. A little bit like the Sanhedrin in the Jewish establishment of Jesus' day. We must be better than that. But that, I think, is our risk. And we need to be brave enough to hold up a mirror to ourselves and ask ourselves the question, do we worship a tame God? Have we remade God subtly in our own image to reinforce our sense of specialness and rightness? Are we an insular wee club? And how might we meet the wider world better? Challenging questions. However, God still connects with people in our midst. Last Wednesday morning, someone confessed Jesus as their Lord for the first time here. If you want to know more about it, talk to Doug, Les or Judy. It blows me away. I'm so grateful to God for that. Now next month, on Saturday the 16th, and I'll confirm those details, we're going to try to discern the way ahead for us as a church. The future that God is leading us into and the people that he is reforming us to be. I need to be clear. I don't have a clear picture of what that future will be like. But I know in my bones that it must be different to what we do now. It just must be. Let's pray. Lord God, give us the courage to seize the moment, to be the people that you would have us be, to be open at the edges, not to judge but to love, to be a community of disciples who strengthen each other, who worship together, who celebrate together, who learn together, and to embrace the world that you have made. Help us to be a blessing in this place, in our schools and universities and our workplaces and our home and our friendship groups and our sports clubs, whatever we do. Help us to be aware that you have gone before us and help us to notice what you might be doing. In Jesus' precious name, amen. One-armed paper hangers, you're on.